Hi, good morning, Three Circle. Great to be with you guys. All of our campuses joining us right now and online. We are going to kick off a new series today, and I'm always excited to kick off a new series like Christmas morning to me, man, okay? Uh, because I love the Word of God, and I can't wait for you guys to be able to walk through the book of Nehemiah with us. We're going to this incredible book in the Old Testament. It's so practical. It's going to teach us so much. I want to make sure that everyone understands, because you're looking at it, you may think, okay, the church has this new initiative going. Is this a giving series? And I will tell you, number one, no, don't, don't worry because we wouldn't do that because we know that we want y'all to keep coming to church, you know what I mean? And so we know how that goes sometimes. And so, no, we're just studying the book of Nehemiah. Now, there's going to be all kinds of applications for that, but what we want you to understand is that Nehemiah was a great builder, and we're going to see him build the walls of Jerusalem. We're going to learn so much. The primary purpose of the book of Nehemiah is not building the walls of Jerusalem, and it's not what a great leader Nehemiah was, and it's not how we can be better leaders and how we can build things. Those are secondary applications. You're going to see that like all of the Bible, the primary focus of the book of Nehemiah is God, the faithfulness of God, who God is, the gospel, and the faithfulness of God to keep his promises to us. That is the core of Nehemiah, and that's why we're going to walk through this book. Nehemiah is best understood as a memoir. It is the prayer journal of a man in this ancient world that God has given us as a gift. And I just absolutely can't tell you how much I love this book. Now, let me give you a little background. So you need to understand the background of the people of Israel that brought us to this point. Uh, The people of Israel, once they left uh, Egypt, they end up in the wilderness. Forty years later, Joshua leads them into the promised land. They end up having unbelievable success. They have the city of Jerusalem, and uh, subsequently they have a group of kings that do a really good job, and they become a powerhouse. But then things go awry, and the people of God begin to drift from God over the years. God sends prophets to warn them, if you keep drifting, I'm going to have to discipline you like any good dad does. They would not listen, so he disciplines them. And how does God discipline a nation? Well, he disciplined the Israelites by allowing them to be uh, taken captive by the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in, won a great battle, and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the homes, destroyed the walls, which are going to play an important role in our series around Jerusalem. And they took almost all the people back captive. And so this went on for over 100 years. The people of God were in captivity. And Nehemiah, our guy, you're going to see, was born during that exile. He had never even seen the city of Jerusalem. And so what's going to happen is the Babylonians have them in exile, and they're bad dudes. But how many of you know that when there's one big bully, there's often another bigger bully around the block, right? And the bigger bully showed up, and that was the Persians. So the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and then one day the Israelites woke up now with their second group of rulers. Now they're under the Persian Empire, and that's where we pick up the story. The difference in the Babylonians and the Persians is that the Persians began to let the people of Israel have a little more breathing room. They begin to kind of go, hey, we, we can expand by maybe letting some of y'all go back to your hometown. And they were kind of a precursor to the Roman Empire in that sense. And it's in that environment that you begin to see some people go back to Jerusalem. It's where we get the story of Esther. We begin to get these things. Nehemiah is going to be a part of that story. And so that's where we pick it up today. And what we're going to find in this series, and I hope you'll see it, is that I think what we're going to find is that they're going to break ground. They're going to break ground on a very important thing. And I think the application for our own lives is that we all have things that we need to break ground on in our own lives. 
I think one of the direct applications is there are things that matter greatly in our lives, and often they go unattended. We just don't do them, and we just push it off and push it off. And I'm hoping that during the Nehemiah series, you will be inspired by God's word to break new ground in your life. I hope that some of you will put the spade in the ground of your marriage to see it have a new day and a new type of love and passion in your marriage for your homes, for your families, with your kids. The things that God has put in your heart that you know you're supposed to be doing, but you've just let the shovel hang on the wall. My hope is that this series will push you by God's power to put the spade in the ground and start digging. But we all know this, understand this, the hardest thing about getting anything done truly is getting started, isn't it? Getting started is the hardest thing. A trainer friend of mine says that uh, he tells all of his clients to put their workout clothes and their workout shoes by the bed so that literally they have to step over them uh, before they go anywhere instead of putting them on, okay? So he's like, put your, first thing you need to do is put your shoes on. Put your workout clothes on. Before you drink your coffee, before you pet your dog, before you comb your hair, before you brush your teeth, put your workout clothes on. The hardest thing is to just get started. And, and I think that's where many of us are. Many of us procrastinate. We put things off. And, and over time, that's what the people of Israel had done. And those walls around Jerusalem had sat in destruction for over a century. And their prestige as a nation, their reputation... It, it was basically non-existent at this point. I think many of us know that there's things we need to start breaking ground on, and we just haven't. It's funny, as I began studying for this series, I also started reading a book, and I didn't know the two would overlap, about the building of the Panama Canal. Now, the building of the Panama Canal is, just, is still considered one of the great engineering feats in human history. It's crazy what they were to pull off, and it was built in the early 1900s with equipment that would be totally outdated today, but they pulled it off, and it's pretty amazing what happened and how hard it was to do. And if you go to Panama today to take a look at the Panama Canal, you know what it was. It was like they basically looked at the continent, and they said, hey, we're having to take our ships all the way around South America to get to the Pacific Ocean. What if we just cut a hole right through the middle of Central America? And, and that sounds easy, doesn't it? It's not easy, okay? And so that's what they did. And if you go to Panama today, this is what you see. You see this finished product. It's beautiful. It is a marvel of engineering. They take ships on the Atlantic side. They raise them up. They bring them across. They put them in this man-made lake, shoot it across the lake. Then they get into another channel. And through a lock system, they raise and lower ships until they get it to the other side, to the Pacific. And they did it. It's unbelievable. And we all like that. But here's the problem. We all want that. But what we fail to realize is that requires this. It requires work. See, that's what it looked like. You don't get the Panama Canal without putting the shovels in the ground, y'all. A massive amount of it was done by hand. There were mosquitoes eating them alive, or as we like to call them here, skeeters. Malaria, yellow fever. 20,000 people gave their lives trying to dig the Panama Canal. But here's the thing I want you to understand is so many of us want our marriages and our homes and our lives and our careers, our personal health. We want it all to be a finished product, but you gotta put the shovel in the ground. And that is what I hope this series will remind you of and even inspire you to do so. Let's take a look, Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. What a name for Nehemiah's dad, Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, basically the capital of Persia that 
Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men back from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now let's just dive into this ancient story begin to learn from it. First of all, Nehemiah was an Israelite. He was born and raised during the Babylonian and Persian exile. He had never been to Jerusalem. He had never seen Jerusalem. It was a far off land that he had only heard of. But he had definitely heard of it because he was taught by godly parents. Oh, Hakaliah was a good man, obviously. And Hakaliah taught his son about, okay, I'll stop doing that. But you know, it is kind of funny. So Nehemiah's dad taught him about God. You're going to find that Nehemiah is a mature, godly believer. Nehemiah is the real deal. He's an Old Testament believer of the utmost importance. And he is devoted to God. And you're going to find he's a good theologian. And you're going to find he knows how to pray. And you're going to find he knows the word of God. He is our guy. He's really got it together spiritually. But he's going to care deeply about a place that he had never been to. That's important to understand. His name, and back then names really mattered. Nehemiah is a Hebrew name that means Jehovah comforts. You know, names back then mattered. You named your kids things because it mattered. So I really, I remember when I wanted to ask my mom, I was like, hey, who'd you name me after? And I was hoping, you know, maybe some Germanic warrior that was heroic and all that. Turns out it was just a good looking dude on a soap opera that she liked in the late 70s. <laughs> so I just make up my own stories. I was named after a Germanic warrior who was a hero. I'm just kidding. But back then, names mattered, and it was Jehovah Comforts. And that is exactly what God's going to do. The, the, main, the main player in the story of Nehemiah is not Nehemiah. It's the faithfulness of God. You're going to see that when Nehemiah prays, he calls on God to be faithful like he knows he is. It's the character of God that we're looking at here. And then you see, as we observe what he does and learn from him, we see that he asks Questions. Nehemiah is a question asker. This is important because asking the right questions can lead us to crucial information. And that information helps us dig the right hole. I don't know about you, but I got a quick trigger. So when I see something needs to be done, often I'll just grab the shovel and start digging without thinking, without really getting a plan, without taking it to the Lord. Well, Nehemiah was a question asker. He wanted to know what's the real deal? What's the situation like down there? What's going on? Why would he care? He's got plenty to worry about. He, he, you're going to find that he's working for the king. He doesn't need to worry about anything else, and yet he cares. He cares about what God cares about. Whatever's on God's agenda is also on Nehemiah's agenda. Whatever's on God's mind, it finds its way to Nehemiah's mind as well. I want to be more like that, church. I want us to be more like that. So Nehemiah asked some questions. And it's going to lead him to understand the real situation in Jerusalem. And by the way, it's going to change the course of his whole life. The answers to the questions. Now, I want to encourage you today as a takeaway. We need to start asking better questions. One of the most powerful things you can do to know where to start digging in your life, where to put the shovel in the ground. If you are married, I want to challenge you to look at your spouse and say, "What? just get ready for this. What's it like being married to me? And then zip it. You don't get to say anything. You don't get to correct. Just zip it and listen. 
and listen to them and let them honestly, because here's something I learned. Someone taught me this principle a long time ago, and I believe it's true. If you react in a way when people tell you the truth that, that, that is negative every single time, if all you will let people tell you is what you want to hear pretty soon, that's all you're going to hear. That's all they'll tell you. If you continually won't let anyone be honest with you, one day they'll stop being honest with you. And they'll just start telling you what you want to hear because they don't want to deal with you. And that happens in marriages and it happens in homes. And so one of the most powerful things you can do is ask good questions and then actually get the answers. Nehemiah is not going to get the, oh, everything's looking good down in Jerusalem. Not bad at all. No, they go, it's bad. It's horrible. It's terrible, Nehemiah, if you want to know the truth. Some of us need to ask that question with our families. How are our families really doing right now? How are your kids really doing? I didn't ask, were they in the homecoming court? I didn't ask, are they, how did the last ball game go? How, how's your kid doing spiritually? How's your kid really doing? And those are questions often we don't want to answer because they're hard. Sometimes we already know the answers and we don't want to entertain them. So for us to know where to stick the shovel in the ground and start digging, we got to ask good questions. And the answer he got was that the walls were torn down. Why were walls such a big deal? Let me tell you why. In the ancient world, walls were for protection, but not just protection, for reputation and for confidence. They were being made fun of. They were once the crown jewel of that world, that ancient world, and now they were made fun of. They were derived everywhere. People, People just talked about the trash heap, the smoldering ruins that were Jerusalem. The great and mighty Jerusalem was not great and mighty anymore. And it hadn't been in so long that now it's just a trash heap. No one had any respect to the Jewish people or their city. This is huge. So what's Nehemiah going to do? Nehemiah 1.4, as soon as I heard that, like as soon as I heard it, I sat down, I wept, and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, here's Nehemiah's just going to keep teaching us. This was a man of God. And you know what godly, mature people do when they face something like this? They pray. Nehemiah's first step was prayer. I'm going to be honest with you today. Sometimes my first step is just grab the shovel and start digging. Nehemiah's first thing to do was start praying. Now, he's going to end up grabbing the shovel. But what's cool is he's going to do it the right way because he prays. He's going to have all this clarity and confidence because he prays. Don't raise your hands in this room or any of the campuses joining us right now, but just inside your heart, ask yourself, is prayer really your first step you take when you face something in life? See, I think what we often do instead of praying first is we make our plans first and we start digging first. And we just go try to do it on our own. And then once we get our plan together, we say, now, God, would you bless this? Would you bless my plans? I think that's what we do. I know that's what I do sometimes. It's kind of like going to your local fast food place and ordering the combo jumbo meal with extra cheese on the fries. And then saying, now, Lord, would you please bless this to the nourishment of my body and my body to your service? Hmm. Do you ever think the Lord's like, might want to make a better choice than the one you just made. See, often we just make our plans and they go, God, would you stamp this with your approval? That's not what Nehemiah did. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to just be heroic and 
use bravado and say, I'm going to go build those walls. He didn't do that. The first thing he did is he became broken before the Lord and he went to God and he prayed. Second Chronicles tells us that if we will do this, big things happen. If my people who are called by my name, not just anyone, but my people would humble themselves. That's important. God, when he describes prayer, comes out of the gate with it as a humbling of ourselves. If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, this is an important description of prayer, and I want you to understand today. Prayer is always an act of humility. Prayer, you can write it down, is humility before confidence, is seeking before doing, and it's asking before acting. Too often, and at least in my life, I often have confidence before I humble myself. I often begin doing before I've actually sought the Lord. And I often act before I ask him if I should and how I should. And on the outside, that looks like a go-getter. On the inside, it's unwise. It's foolish. And can I just tell you this? A, a prayerless life is an arrogant life. For me to not pray is saying, by its very act, for me to have a prayerless life is to say, I don't need you. Lord, I got this. Nehemiah realizes he does not have this. And praying is an act of humility. Every time you pray, you are saying, I need you. I need your guidance. I need your help. I need your hand in my life. And, and Lord, I want to pick up the shovel and start digging. But before I do, I want you to tell me where you want me to dig and when you want me to dig and how you want me to do it. Now, that is humility. And God says, if we will do this, that he will bless us and he will heal and he will restore and he will do great things in our lives. And even in our nation, he will do this. I just don't want you to ever get, church, that when you pray, it is an act of humility. When you don't pray, it's an act of arrogance. It really is. So Nehemiah's first thing to do was pray. And then here's what's awesome. I can't tell you what a gift the Bible is in a million different ways. But Nehemiah is a gift. You're going to see chapter by chapter, wow, look what God's given us. Well, he gave us his prayer journal. And he's going to tell you what he prayed. He's like, the first thing I did, and I knew I needed to do it, is I needed to pray, and here's what I prayed. Are y'all ready to hear what Nehemiah prayed? You're not as excited as I thought you'd be. But I can hear all the campuses, and they're all excited. All the other campuses are excited. Now, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice a feature. Jesus taught us in the New Testament how to pray. Do you remember that? We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it was really his prayer for us to pray. I want you to notice how much Nehemiah's prayer looks like the way Jesus taught us to pray, okay? just want you to notice that. And that's from a Bible nerd to you, okay? Here we go. Nehemiah 1, 5 through 7. And I said, notice he does not start with request. He starts with worship. It's a realignment of his heart. Oh, Lord God of heaven. Does that remind you of anything? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He says, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, but now he goes personal, which we, not just them, we have sinned against you. He doesn't blame it on them. He's a part of the problem. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted, and he gets detailed. It's not just sin to him. Let me tell you what we've done, Lord. We've acted corruptly against you, and we've not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules. And watch this, full responsibility. He does not say, but we we didn't know. We didn't know what to do. No, he goes, that you commanded your servant Moses. In other words, he's admitting we knew what we should have been doing. You had Moses write it down. We are without excuse. Do you hear the humility? Do you see the parallel to the way Jesus taught us to pray? He prays, God, you are awesome. Here's who you are. I am your servant. Forgive me of my part in this. Not just the nation. It's funny, often <clears throat> modern day Christianity, we like to point out the problems of the world, but we don't like to look at our own sometimes. We like to look at a culture and think that lost people should stop acting lost. You do know that Christians are the only people to try to clean their fish before they even catch them. A cascade of understanding that joke comes across the room. Like lost people act lost, man. Of course they do. They're lost. They're without Jesus. No, but we, we know. And Nehemiah says we had no excuse. And then he goes, yep, everyone who got us in this exile, remember he was born into it, everyone who got us into this mess, they sinned. But he goes, but me too. I knew what I should do and I haven't done it. And my, and my family, we didn't do it. We own it. See, Nehemiah, write it down, personally connects to the situation. If you want to to break some ground in your life for the glory of God and the good of you and your family and those around you, whatever that looks like, church, whatever it is, you're going to have to get get personally connected. It's going to have to matter to you. You're going to have to understand that you are a part of where it is now, so you're going to have to be a part of where it's going. That's huge. It's like... Many of us in this room, you may be looking at me right now and you may be thinking to yourself, you know what, I really like what Chris is talking about and I know exactly who needs to hear this message. (laughs) And if you're thinking that right now, if you're that person that thinks, I'm going to get a copy of this and send it to him, I know who needs to hear it. I want you to know, this shovel is for you. (laughs) This is your shovel. No, no, you need this. You got some places you need to start digging in your life he's personal about it then he goes on with his prayer nehemiah 1 8 through 9 and i I love this is mature prayer so this is how mature people who know god and walk with him this is what their prayer lives look like he now is going to tie his prayer to the word of god he says remember the word that you commanded your servant moses and he reminds god not that he needed to be reminded but he's just going to He's going to let God know, I know your word. And look what he says. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. He knows this is what God said. That was the warning. And he did, verse 9. But you also said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcast, are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Do you see that? So Nehemiah is not just saying things that he heard on Christian television the week before in the Persian capital. He's not just saying little things he heard when he went to church growing up. 
He is standing on the word of God. He says, God, this is what you said. And you kept your promise. On one side, you said if we did this, you would scatter us. You did. But you also said that if we would return to you, you would restore us. And God, I am calling on you to do what you have said in your word. Write it down. Nehemiah's prayer is tethered to the word of God. I can't tell you how important that is. That is mature prayer life. See, I think a lot of us, we do not have effective prayer lives because we don't pray the word. Our prayers are just immature prayers, honestly. Let me give you an example. I hope it helps you understand. When my kids were little, they loved gummy worms and chocolate milk. And sometimes at dinner, you know, we'd be putting something healthy together. And one of them would come to me and say, can we just have gummy worms and chocolate milk? They made their request known to me. And I did not grant that. In fact, I wouldn't even listen to that anymore. Pretty soon, I just stopped even saying no to it. I just ignored it while I kept making with my wife them a little healthy meal, right? Because I know that's not good for them. I'm not going to answer that request. So that's, that's not good for them. I know it's not good for them. And they're, ask, they're kids. They don't know any better. But as they grow, you know what happens now, especially my two sons are into working out and all, and they want like healthy food now. They want protein shakes. So they'll come in. They're like, Dad, frozen bananas, frozen blueberries. Can we get another bag of that whey protein? All that kind of stuff. And you know what I say now? Why, yes, my son, you may have those things. <laughs> You see the difference? Because now they're asking things that are good for them. They're asking things, and, and, and you go, is this a biblical principle? Actually, it is. 1 John 5.14 says, this is, this is how you become confident in your prayers. This is the confidence that we have towards God. If we ask anything, watch this, according to his will, he hears us. Where do we find God's will? In the word of God. This is why your familiarity with his word will increase the impacts of your prayers. Because when we pray his word, we stop asking for gummy worms and chocolate milk. We start asking for protein shakes. And something changes. We begin to pray according to his will. And you know what Nehemiah does? He prays literally his word. God's going to answer him. There's great power in tethering our prayer lives to the word of God. Nehemiah 1.10, he continues. He says, they are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now, what's he talking about? I love this. Nehemiah looks around what is now Persia, and he realizes that most of the time when, when places like Babylon and Persia take over a place, they just wipe them out, but not the Israelites. He looks around, they're still there. They're all still there. There's still a million plus Israelites in Persia. They're still there. The Israelites have been preserved. And Nehemiah looks around and he realizes, though it doesn't look the way they all wanted it to look, that even now with now not just one but two brutal empires, God has protected and preserved his people. He does not wipe out his children. Instead, he disciplines his children. So Nehemiah says the same God that brought us out of Egypt has now preserved us in exile, and you're the same God that can restore us again. See what's happening is Nehemiah is trusting God's track record, and he has a track record. He has one. There's certain places that have good track records. Look, when I pull into Chick-fil-A and I am still four miles away and the line has already started, I just relax because I know we're going to be good, man. 
I get you through there fast at the gospel bird. I've got a really good system. And I'm never going to have anyone be rude to me there, ever. Because i got a track record. i got a long history with the Christian chicken. <laughs> They're always going to say, my pleasure. Aren't they? I mean, it can be a 15-year-old. My pleasure. doesn't matter. There are other places that I shall not name in this pulpit today that also have track records. And if I even see a little bit of a line in that fast food line, I'm not pulling in there because I know how that's going to go. And I have never at some of those places heard the words, my pleasure. Because they make it obvious it is not their pleasure. (laughs) Track record. Track record. Listen, God has a track record and Nehemiah is primarily about reminding his people then and his people today. He's got a track record. He is faithful. He will not forsake you. He is great. He is good. He is powerful. And you can trust the God that Nehemiah trusted. You can trust him. He's good. And he keeps his promises. He preserves his people. And he ends with this, verse 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And then he tells you what he's going to do. He says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man? Well, there's one more line we didn't put in your handout. We wanted you to see it up here. Here's the last line of chapter one of Nehemiah. I was the cupbearer to the king. See, he's just told you that after days of praying, instead of just grabbing the shovel, he went to God first. Now he knows exactly the first hole he's got to dig, the first piece of ground he's got to break, and he's decided he's going to do it because God in prayer has given him clarity and confidence. You can write it down. He now has clarity from those prayers. Nehemiah has found clarity through prayer, and now he knows what to do. And what he's going to do is he's going to risk everything by going to the king, the cupbearer. And he's the one, you know what the cupbearer did, right? He would taste the food and the drink to make sure it wasn't going to kill the king. You go, that's a bad job. Well, not so bad, actually. In that world, in that brutal world, that means he was living in absolute opulence. He was living in the palace. He had a great room. He had great food all the time. He probably had a little fun with it. I mean, don't you think every now and then they'd bring the food, he'd taste it. I'm just kidding, guys. I'm just kidding. Take it to the king. But what you're going to see Nehemiah do is he's going to risk everything because he has clarity. He now has the confidence. I took this to the Lord, and now I'm going to take it to the king because I'm the guy that's got to go build that wall. And the first ground i got to break is getting the king to let me go. Now, my question to you today, real simple, out of this. We see the faithfulness of God. We know it from the gospel in our own lives. But how do we apply this? I think we all have ground we need to break. How long are you going to wait to break it? When are you going to take it to the Lord and pray and say, God, give me the strength and direction. Order my steps. What ground are you supposed to be breaking in your life? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the first chapter of Nehemiah. We love the word of God. Help us to apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.